And now we go into Jephthah chapter 10, verse 6. The Israelites again did evil in the Yahweh's sight, and they worshipped the Baals and the Ashtars, which is basically the same as Asherah, as well as the gods of Syria, Sidon, Moab, Ammonites, and the Philistines. And they abandoned Yahweh and did not worship him. And Yahweh was furious with Israel and turned them over to the Philistines and Ammonites. And they ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 18 years. That is, all the Israelites living in the East Jordan and the Amorite territory, country of Gilead. The Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight with Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim. Israel suffered greatly. Then the Israelites cried out for help to Yahweh. We have sinned against you. We abandon our God and worship the Baals. So notice that they're crying out to God. But this time, that's not just a simple crying out to God. God's developing their crying out sentence a little bit more. And the reason he's developing that more is because of his response. And Yahweh basically responds and said, Did I not deliver you from Egypt, the Ammonites, Amorites, and the Ammonites, and the Philistines, the Sidonians, Amalek, Midian? And when they oppressed you, you cried out for help to me, and I delivered you from their power. But since they abandoned me and worshipped other gods, I will not deliver you again. Go and cry help to the gods that you have chosen. Let them deliver you from trouble. Basically cry out for help, and God says, I'm done. I'm done. You know how many times I've delivered you? Let me count the ways. And he lists all these nations that he's delivered them from. Because yes, Yahweh has incredible patience. And yes, Yahweh will be faithful to you even when you're not faithful to Him. But there is a limit. There is a certain point where the mercy and grace of God does run out and His justice must kick in. Because He is both a just and a merciful God. So He goes to them He says, I'm done. I'm not going to rescue you anymore. Now this says something big time. Because when he says, like, I'm not going to wipe out the Canaanites until their sin is complete and he has to wait 400 more years. When he puts up the flood generation and says, I've had it up to here with the flood generation. I'm no longer going to contend with you. I'll give you 120 more years to repent. I mean, this is a long-suffering God. So for God to come to his own covenant people who he's made promises to and said, I'm done, that says something about how horrible their sin is. It also says something to much is given as much is held accountable to. They know better. They have a much better understanding of Yahweh. This is the pattern you keep seeing throughout the Bible. They keep worshiping other gods, but every time they get in trouble, they go to Yahweh. Because deep down inside, they know who really is the God who can answer their prayers. Even us, we're, we're not really good at being faithful 100% all the time. Even though deep down inside, we really truly know who's the only one who's going to be faithful and will help us and take care of us. But that i got to be in control, we tend to default to other things. And the hope is that our default gets changed by the Holy Spirit over time. And it becomes less and less. So he tells them, go to your own gods. You worship them, you sacrifice them, you abandon them, let them help you. But the Israelites said to Yahweh, we have sinned. You do with us whatever you see fit, but deliver us today. They threw away their foreign gods they owned and worshipped Yahweh. Finally, Yahweh grew tired of seeing Israel suffer so much. What changed him? True repentance. See, saying I'm sorry is not enough. But repentance is basically turning away from your sin and pursuing a new direction that will cost you something. True repentance costs you something. 
Because when Jacob truly repented, he buried his idols. That's a lot of money to bury in the ground. It's going to cost you. Not, never mind the fact that no longer will those gods protect him. So he's got to really believe that Yahweh is going to protect him. They're burying their idols and getting rid of them. It's costing them. Even going up to somebody and swallowing your pride and saying, I'm sorry, I'm wrong, it's costing you something. Maybe not a financial cost, but there is cost always involved. And if somebody's not willing to pay the cost, that's not real repentance. It's not real repentance. No matter what they feel, actions are all that matters. And that's what changes God. And what's cool here is even when God runs out of patience, all it takes is true, genuine repentance. And God relents and rescues them. And then that makes this following story, Jephthah, even more significant because the only reason he's using Jephthah is because of their true repentance. But it also adds because he also couldn't bear to see their suffering anymore. So this is not just a legal term of repentance. It's also an emotional, relational sense of repentance that God is feeling here. And then God uses Jephthah, who's not the most ideal case. Chapter 10, verse 17. The Ammonites assembled and camped in Gilead. Gilead is over here in the territory of Gad and Manasseh on the eastern side of the Jordan River. The Ammonites are over here. So they are direct neighbors coming in and attacking. They gathered together and camped at Mizpah, and the leaders of Gilead said to one another, Who is willing to lead a charge against the Ammonites? He will become our leader of all that who live in the Gilead. So they want a leader that will help deliver them. Why in the world would they think that they can find their own deliverer? Because the last several judges they have have been appointing their own successors. Now you think, oh, what's the big deal of your son just taking over after you die? Because you've taught the people that that's how you pick leaders now. And now, instead of crying out to God and say, give us a deliverer, they think, oh, we'll just pick our own leaders because that's how we always do it. We don't need God. Now, I know they're probably not necessarily saying we don't need God, but subconsciously that's what they're thinking. This is how little things can set you up for huge failures. Now, Jephthah, the Gileite, was a brave warrior, and his mother was a prostitute, but Gilead was his father. Basically, dad's not loyal to his wife, and that's where Jephthah's coming from. Gilead's wife also gave him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they made Jephthah leave and said to him, You are not going to inherit any of our father's wealth, because you are another woman's son. So Jephthah left his half-brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Lawless men joined Jephthah's gang and traveled with him. So you now see, once again, just like Abimelech, you have a father who's sleeping with another woman to produce a son. Then he has legitimate sons, and they're like, we don't like you. You're not going to inherit anything. We're going to kick you out. So there's nothing you do about it, so he gets kicked out. Now notice that he's the older brother, yet he's outnumbered. So he gets kicked out, and he gathers a bunch of worthless scoundrel mercenaries around him, just like Abimelech. So this is like Abimelech 2.0. Now this is important because we're, now we have Jephthah who's the leader of this gang of mercenaries, which means mercenaries will do anything for money. It was sometime after this that when the Ammonites fought with Israel, when the Ammonites attacked, the leaders of Gilead asked Jephthah to come back from the land of Tob. And they said, come to be our commander so we can fight with the Ammonites. And Jephthah said to the leaders of Gilead, but you hated me. 
and you made me leave my father's house. Why do you come to me now when you are in trouble? So years go by, and he's gained a reputation for being a really good warrior and a brave fighter and a successful one. And they're being oppressed. And they're like, hey, let's call up Jephthah, and he'll come and deliver us. Now notice who they're going to. They're going to the one that's politically has a good reputation, militarily has a good reputation, rather than the character. And they're like, well, we don't know his character yet. So he says, wait a minute, did you, did you not hate me when we were growing up and treat me like crap? The leaders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that made true, but never mind. We'll, be, we'll pledge all the oil to you do now. Like, oh, let's just forget about that. That was a pass. Never mind that. We need you now. Come with us and fight the Ammonites, and you will become our leader. You will be our leader and all who live in Gilead. Jephthah said to the leaders of Gilead, all right, if you take me back and, and I fight with the Ammonites, and Yahweh gives them to me, notice he uses the name Yahweh, I will be your leader. The leaders of Gilead said to Jephthah, Yahweh will judge any grievances you have against us if we do not do to you as you say. So Jephthah went with them, the leaders of Gilead, and the people made him their leader and commander. Jephthah repeated the terms of the agreement before Yahweh at Mizpah. So why is he doing this? What's the, he's a mercenary. He doesn't do anything for free. He's doing it for kingship. If you make me king, then I'll help you. Because being king pays a lot more than just getting a, a payment. So he's like Gideon, and he's like Abimelech, and he's only doing it for the power and the kingship. Notice, too, that they go to Mizpah, and they do a treaty before God, where they're basically saying, in the name of Yahweh, we will leave Yahweh completely out of this, and we'll pick our own leader based on what we think is a good criteria, not on character, and he will help us only for money and pay, all in the name of Yahweh. Verse 12, Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king, saying, Why have you come against me to attack my land? The Ammonite king said to Jephthah and the messengers, Because Israel stole my land when you came up from Egypt when the Arna River of the south. So he says, why are you attacking our land? And they're like, because you took this land from us when God brought you into the land. Now, they don't say God, but that's how we know. So way back in the book of Numbers, when you guys came up in here, you stole the land from us, and we're taking it back. Now, Jephthah is a mercenary, which means the thing that he's more interested in is money. And fighting a war costs money. But if you can win a war without fighting, then you have even more money at the end of it all. So he's going to write a letter and sue for peace. And if he can sue for peace, then it's cost him nothing, and he has become king. So he writes a letter back to the king of Ammon, and he basically makes three points in this letter. The first point he makes is that Yahweh gave them the land. Yahweh gave them the land, not them. They have no claim to this land at all. Now, you would say, well, technically that wouldn't count for them. But the one that he's probably implying is this, that we're the ones that successfully defeated and took the land, and we all know that in ancient speak, that means that our God was more powerful than anybody else's God, so God gave us the land. But he doesn't need to say all that because they already know that. Just like if I tell you about getting on an airplane and how the stewardess took care of me, I don't have to explain to you what an airplane is and what a stewardess is because you all know that. In fact, I'd be wasting your time and insulting your intelligence if I define all this thing. They all know that that means we have the land, 
Therefore, God gave it to us because if our God hadn't given it to us, we wouldn't have the land. You would have it. So that's kind of an illegitimate argument. The second point that he makes is, you should follow the examples of all the kings before us. Remember Balak, who hired Balaam to curse us and attack us, and how Og and Sihon tried to stop us? They couldn't stop us. So why didn't you learn that lesson and just back off? So he's basically automatically assuming that Yahweh's with him and backing him and going to fight for him. And the third point that he makes is that we've occupied this land for 300 years and you've never tried to take it. Why now? If this really was your land and you really did really have rights to it, you can't take it. So give you an example. I work in apartment complexes in the summer. And a lot of times people, it's amazing what people leave behind apartments when they move away. Like perfectly good stuff. Like sometimes things are not even unwrapped, have its original packaging. And they just leave it behind. They leave it behind, we gather it up, we put it in a storage room. If they don't claim it within 30 days, by law it's ours. And so the idea is like, if you don't claim this in 30 days, you've given up your rights on it. And this is what he said, it's been 300 years and you've never tried to take this land back. Therefore, even if you had a legitimate argument that the land was yours, which it never actually was their land to begin with, you still lost rights by the fact that it took you 300 years to claim that. It's like my daughter. Like, there's these things in her house that she never, ever plays with. And then after, like, two months of it just sitting there, unplayed with, my other daughter picks up and starts playing with it, and my oldest daughter's like, that's mine. You can't play with that. It's like, you... You lost your rights to it when you have played with it in months. Seriously. But not your kids. So, so this is the argument that he makes in his letter. However, the Ammonite king is like, I don't care. I mean, in some sense you're like, wow, that's pretty cool, Jephthah. You're trying to like negotiate a peace. But at the same time, it's like we're talking about ancient de- despot kings. Why would that letter even convince him in any kind of a way? But what's interesting here is is it shows that, I think one of the reasons that God put this in the Bible is to show he knows his history. He knows the history of what God has done in the land, which means he's not ignorant of his science school lessons. And he's using the name Yahweh, which he's not ignorant of the uniqueness of who Yahweh is. And that's very important for you to understand from this letter is he knows the history of what God has done. So the question is, is he going to trust Yahweh if he knows the history? Verse 29. Yahweh's spirit empowered Jephthah. So what's he supposed to do? immediately go into battle and defeat the enemy. So he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and he went to Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he approached the Ammonites, and Jephthah made a vow to Yahweh. Sounds like Gideon. If you really do hand the Ammonites over to me, then whoever is the first to come through the doors of my house to meet me when I return safely from fighting the Ammonites, he or it will become a burnt offering. What's his first problem that he just made here? If you give me victory, then I will worship you. Only then. 
Gideon kind of did that too with the fleece. Like, only if you can prove yourself here, God, that you'll actually deliver me by making the fleece wet and the ground dry and vice versa, then I'll do this. And then who else does that remind you of? Barak. If you go with me, Deborah, then I'll obey God. If you give me victory, then I'll worship you, God. But then he says, whatever comes out of my house, I'll offer as a burnt offering. Now, burnt offering means you kill it and you burn it. And some translations say he or she, because the Hebrew word here could also be legitimately, and some people actually argue, should be argued as a human. So a lot of people think like, oh, this, this isn't the Flintstones where the first thing that comes out of the door to greet you when you come home is the dinosaur. <laughs> Most of the time when you've come back from battle, the first thing that come out to greet you when you come home is your family, your wife and your kids, because they're the ones that are constantly wondering if you're coming back. They're the first ones, and you've seen enough World War II movies where the soldiers come back and have to tell the families that they're dead, and the first person to open the door is not an animal. It's the wife. Logically speaking, he knows what, and he's a warrior. He knows what usually comes out of the door first. And two, the fact that it probably should be more translated that way, you can't make a perfect argument for that, but given the context means that he knows this. So does he really know who God is? No. So he says, only if you give me victory will I worship you, and I'll worship you in a pagan way that you abhor and you've commanded not to do. He doesn't really know who Yahweh is. Yet, Yahweh handed them over to him. He defeated them from Orar all the way to Mineth, 20 cities in all, even as far as Abel Karamin. And he wiped them all out, and the Israelites humiliated the Ammonites. God gave him the victory. God's not responsible for your obedience after he aids you. Because that, if that was true, if God never aids you and never helps you, if you're going to be disobedient afterwards, then he would never do that for any of us. So a lot of people are like, well, why did God help him? This is messed up if he knows that he... Because that's what it means to be human. If he never helped, if he only helped us based on our obedience, he would never help us. That's not the point. 